Hi there and welcome to another episode of Leading with James Ashton. In this podcast, I talk to leaders from a wide range of organisations about their attitude to leadership, success, failure, big decisions and how they made it to the top. This is the second in a short run of one-on-one conversations talking about how COVID-19 has changed the game and how to lead out of this crisis. This time I talk to Martin Houghton-Brown. He's chief executive of St John Ambulance, the famous first aiding charity whose volunteers have been saving lives since 1877 and provide vital support to the NHS. We talked about the charity's current financial pressures, the need to reorganise post-COVID and how Martin finds time and space to switch off. I began asking how St John Ambulance had been retooled to battle COVID-19. We could see this coming from some way off and uh, in particular because we are in the events business so we're in mass gatherings and as coronavirus was kicking off in China we could see that any changes to society would start in mass gatherings. So our planning uh, really started there and almost immediately we recognised that if we didn't change our rhythm, our pace, the way that we made decisions we were going to get really really stuck. So uh, we turned off our normal leadership pattern and created a completely different way of leading the organisation. So we sort of put together a strategic coordination group that had key stakeholders in it that were going to meet daily from the beginning. So we were live with that about the 18th of March, a little bit earlier in in sort of practising it out. And uh, they really took command of the organisation. And I made the decision not to be the leader of that group. So my COO took that group forward. And that gave me distance, it gave me space, it gave me the ability to stay in the strategic, keep looking long term. And they immediately created four regional groups that were coordinating every activity. So suddenly, every decision point was referenced back to there. And I could see the financial crisis coming, you know, that was going to be huge. Because we're a charity that has developed really strong social enterprises, so very uh, much relying on trade income rather than on fundraising or on government income, we could see our trading businesses were going to dry up really quickly because our training business relies on people coming in close proximity, being trained uh, face-to-face, and equally, obviously, our events business. So we knew that we were going to hit an absolute financial wall. So the the other bit that I did immediately was take a you know, massive set of breaks to our expenditure. Martin, just to come on, we'll come on to the financial uh, implications in a, in a moment. I suppose just to set the scene of St. John Ambulance, I mean, everyone knows the brand. You know, you are training people in schools and hospitals. You are vital support to NHS with um, your ambulance services. And you are very recognisable. The first aid is on the ground at big music and sports events and so on. So how many volunteers in total? And, and have you, have you, you've put them all into COVID-19 response? Yeah, I think St. John is much misunderstood. Uh, we are 30,000 volunteers. Over half of those are under 25 years old. And those volunteers are the people who are delivering first aid at events. They are the people out on the ambulances uh, when we're uh, helping the NHS and winter operations or as we are right now. And as you say, we are orientating the organisation towards COVID. So all of our volunteers are undertaking new training. I've really made it 
uh, an emphasis that we've got to know that they're as safe as they possibly can be. So everyone's got to do 20 hours extra training before they can be deployed. Uh, and uh, they have been signing up in their thousands to go out on the front line. But equally, I've been saying, look, it's okay not to go out on the front line. If you have any worries, any concerns, if you've got people at home you need to safeguard, don't turn up, don't show up. Show up in other ways. Show up online. Show up by supporting your colleagues. Undertake fundraising. Do whatever you can, but don't feel any pressure to be out there in what is, quite frankly, quite a risky environment. Because how do, I mean, I guess you have to, as you say, you give your people the choice, but how do they feel? What is morale like in the organisation? Do you know, it's extraordinary. There is this sense of, for such a time as this, that we were designed for this. And in many respects, it feels like doing first aid at a football ground or at a marathon or at a pride festival is training for this because the skills that they bring are largely about reassuring patients, being kind to patients, helping patients in a crisis. And, you know, the majority of our work is, is, is plasters on blisters and it's helping people when they've tripped or fallen. And there's very little in the way of really acute events. But quite often when it is an acute event, it's something really serious. It is a cardiac arrest. It's a stroke. It's someone developing symptoms of sepsis. And so what we're trained to do is be really calm and moderate those crises. And what the crews are telling me is that when they're going out and meeting patients, that people are terrified. They're terrified of going to hospital. They're terrified of the virus. They they don't want to place themselves at further risk. And uh, what the doctors and nurses who are working alongside our volunteers are saying is what St. John people bring is this patience, this kindness, this gentleness that really reassures patients and helps patients to gain confidence to do the right thing to protect themselves. But at the same time, Martin, I guess you have to do what you can to reassure your people, as you say, keep them safe and train them extra. Because aside from all the things that they've done in the past, there is much more risk to them from this outbreak than there is from the routine medical situations they're called out to. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you know, obviously infection prevention control is a normal part of life, but it's an outlying risk, whereas now it's a frontline risk. And I guess, you know, that's the story of leadership at this moment, isn't it? Managing all of the risks that are associated with operating in a very strange uh, environment, a very different environment. And I think knowing that People have got the choice, recognising that at every point I've said, you know, if you don't have the right PPE, don't go out there, don't participate in anything that you don't feel safe doing. I think it's given people confidence. Actually, people have probably been braver and stronger because they feel that we care, that we we know the, the risks, and they're doing all the right things. And that extra 20 hours of training, which was our decision, and I'm not sure who else has done that, but we we just said, look, let's, let's lay it on thick that... Um, even if it's rehearsing good old traditional skills about hand washing, let's do that right. Let's help people to really think through the risks they're taking, really reflect on what it means to go out and work on the front line in this environment. And the feedback is just fantastic. People are saying, this is exactly what I have always wanted to do to make a difference in society. And what about the relationship with the NHS? Because I didn't really understand how it all worked. And correct me if I've, I've got it wrong, but you have um, among your different problems of activity, these community first responders. So quite often when there's an ambulance call out, um, I think um, St. John's Ambulance will get there first. 
if they're local and they can help, they will do. So tell me a little bit about how that's worked in, in this crisis. And then I guess the conversation that said, well, of course, St. John Ambulance people will be there in numbers at these Nightingale hospitals. Yeah, so uh, the community first responder schemes, for example, we run all of the community first responders in London, are uh, volunteers who've got day jobs, who've got a bag by their desk, who turn on their mobile app or their radio, and uh, when they get the call, they dash to the scene. And in normal London, they're very often the first people on the scene. They can stabilise, they got a range of equipment that means that they can defibrillate and do those things in a cardiac arrest scenario or apply uh, a dressing if it's a you know catastrophic bleed but of course times are really different right now and so uh, we're able to mobilize ambulances where we would have deployed first responders so on the streets of London you're much more likely to see a St John ambulance than you are a, um, one of our volunteers in their own civilian vehicle because we're stepping up to support the NHS uh, in a way that we only do usually under winter pressures or for example the you know the, the beast from the east storm we got yeah. the call they said can you help uh, and we we stand up in those uh, times with those extra skills and yes, they've asked us for more than we've ever done before. So deploying into the Nightingale hospitals, uh, one of the most popular volunteering roles at the moment is going into emergency departments where we're helping to triage patients, take observations, uh, manage uh, equipment uh, so that uh, the nurses and doctors can focus on the most acute, that they can provide more time with those people who are the poorliest, uh, whilst our volunteers are looking after those who are least poorly or perhaps just need monitoring for an, uh, an extended period of time and volunteers are saying to me uh, so for example Darren who uh, normally works in health and safety in a bank he said that what's fantastic is you find people come in they're terrified they don't really want to be in hospital and you can sit with them you can take their temperature you can take their blood pressure you can take their oxygen etc and garner intelligence that helps the the medics when they take over that means you can accelerate people through or get them home quickly uh, and that's got to be the biggest objective to get people home safely yeah so how many of your 30,000 are out there every day at the moment so on a daily basis it's a, a relatively small number so it, it it's about a thousand people a day and what we're trying to do is emphasize that people need to pace themselves some people still are at work some people are on furlough but we've had people who are taking unpaid leave and we've had employers who have uh, incredibly generously released people for four-week blocks the idea is that we want people to not burn out in this environment you know this is not their full-time job they don't have the stamina that an NHS doctor or nurse would have who, who's been doing this day in and day out. So it takes that extra drain out of people. And also we've got to recognise people will have to go back to work. They've got to look after their own financial well-being as well. So we are doing all that we can to manage that balance between being a volunteer and having a normal day job. And was there anything really to prepare you for this, Martin? I mean, you, you've had a little over two years to settle into the role. But I mean, as you said at the top, this is unlike any leadership challenge anyone has ever faced before. I don't know that anything can prepare you for this kind of decision making, this kind of leadership. It's interesting what I've relied on. Um, I think in many respects, I, I started life as a clergyman. And um, so I worked in churches. And in many respects, I've relied more heavily on those skills than I have on any of my other skills. Uh, because this is a huge pastoral job. This is about taking care of 
32,000 people, you know, we've, we've got about 1,500 employees as well as the 30,000 volunteers. And it's about looking after those people's well-being because that's the biggest challenge for any individual, whether you're working from home and facing isolation, whether you're putting your life at risk on the front line, or whether you're worried sick about your financial well-being during this crisis. And, and so I found myself looking to help people to feel inspired, helping people to feel that they are understood, that there is an empathic response from the organisation, as well as a clarity of hope and aspiration for what we can achieve. And I think those are all skills that I honed in many respects when I was leading churches. I think probably the other bit that has been so important is that ability to work so closely with your financial leaders to recognize that the big risks that are being taken need to be extraordinarily well managed and making big decisions quickly and I I think my whole leadership journey has been characterized with making difficult decisions uh, you know turning charities around that are struggling is fundamentally a, a job of making bold decisions often in the face of the evidence in order to be able to help people to see a different future to the one that had been mapped out and i suppose we've got to come on to those financial challenges at st john ambulance as you said you stepped back and let your coo get on with it and it's great i suppose that you have a team that you can you can trust that know the organization well and can deploy people in that way. But what about from the, the financial point of view? Because you are a, a charity, but as you say, much of your activities are trading. I mean, people, I guess it's the, the people in workplaces pay you for, for the training that you do in, in normal times. And then there's also a range of first aid products that you sell and so on. I mean, there is, you know, money changes hands and and it's very difficult at the moment for, for, for anything to change hands in that way. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to put, put it into scale and context, the charity turns over about £100 million a year. About half of that comes from our training income. So we are the largest provider of first aid training in the UK. Uh, we do that mainly for people who need their statutory certification for first aid, for health and safety, for fire service. And that training business is profitable. So it generates the income that pays for the infrastructure of the organisation. It pays for the buildings, it pays for senior staff, it pays for uh, the technology. It means that the whole organisation can operate and it's voluntary effort to help in communities, to help change society with young people, which relies heavily on fundraising. That fundraising income that comes in every penny can be spent on making a difference. The event business really doesn't make much money, um, but it does wash its face. So, it- event is when you're on the front line at the Royal. This is when you're on, on the front line at, at, I don't know whether you're at Glastonbury or Hyde Park events or the Royal Wedding or so on. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the day-to-day bread and butter for us is, is stadium work. So, we're, you know, we're there in the football stadium, stood on the terraces, um, you know, and and by and large that, you know, that, that that is trips and falls and cardiac arrests. It's, you know, it's little or little or all. And then, yes, 
big festivals, big running events, and so on. And those, you know, they they pay a, a, a decent amount, but they really only pay for the equipment, for the uniforms, uh, making sure that our people are fed and watered and transported there, and so on. They don't make a great deal of money financially for us. And I should just say, there's some numbers. If I can share the numbers, I, I think these are yeah. right from 2018. So first day training in schools plus workplaces with about 382,000 people in 2018, and you you staffed twenty two thousand events and treated one hundred and four thousand people. Um, so as you say, you are there. You are there in numbers. Yeah, it's a scale operation, and it's it's England wide. You know, it means that I, you know I'm running a fleet of nine hundred vehicles. I've got a a property estate that both rented and freehold of about nine hundred properties. So the extent of cost of running the organisation as usual is fairly much up there with that 100 million income you know this is a a reasonable size business and from a, a charity perspective we you know we're very much seen as a large charity and that's absolutely gone at the moment there obviously can't be any income from sports events from training and it's all about throwing everything into into the front line so you told the um, DCMS committee i think at the end of march that you could run out of money uh, by summer i think you said august without government support since then Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has come forward with £750 million for charities. And I think you're saying that's great, but um, you've launched a drive to raise £6 million. So tell me about, take up the story about what your view of what the government has offered and what you need to do to, to survive from this point on. Well, of course, you know, what a lot of organisations have done is, is put as many people as possible on furlough, and we have done that too. So we have furloughed almost all of our first aid trainers and much of the infrastructure that supports that part of the organisation. We've closed all but 35 buildings. We've done everything we can to control cost. But we are delivering this huge COVID operation, and so much of the organisation needs to continue running. So, you know, from financial perspective, uh, we've got a £1.4 million a week loss, but we're still spending £1.6 million a week. So there is, uh, you know, a real challenge. Now, some of the work that we're doing for the NHS uh, has a number attached to it. So the NHS recognises cost and reimburses us for that cost. And Rishi mentioned us in his statement. And so that kind of behind the scenes lobbying as well as the public lobbying for government support as we deliver for the nation has come back. But we that still leaves us short. So we won't run out of money because of the NHS money and the Treasury money by August. But we will run out by the end of the year. So uh, the challenges now are, you know, we need to get back to business when we can. We need to continue to furlough as long as we can, um, and those two are obviously, a, you know, that's a that's a difficult equation to balance. And uh, we're using fundraising, so we have gone out to the public and said, look, we need to raise about six million pounds to continue the operations, make sure that we don't have any let up in the capacity to deliver for the nation, and also that we're big enough and strong enough to. Uh, resurge when people want to go back to playing football, to having parties in the park and uh, uh, their their sporting occasions. So it's really important that whatever we're doing now leaves us strong enough to rebuild the organisation for next year. But I can't see a world in which St John doesn't just have a low turnover year in 2020, but a low turnover year in 2021 as well. Uh, you know, I think this is a two-year programme of change. So working out how we right-size the organisation for that next stage is 
you know, both emotionally difficult because when you're talking about a smaller organization that has an impact on employees, uh, it has an impact on buildings, it has an impact on fleet, and the you know very practical sense of when's the right moment to make those decisions, how dynamic are you in your decision making? Well, let me come on to the right sizing because I'm very interested. I mean, we, we're, we're talking about leading through the crisis and then, fingers crossed, leading out of it. But with, with, the, with the numbers, is it simply the case that the government needs to offer charities like yours more support? And then secondly, I'm interested in, in, is there a sense of frustration that you want to get back to work at these football grounds? Many people on the pitch are earning stratospheric numbers and, and might think about how they can contribute themselves. Yeah, I, I think we see that the world has always been imbalanced. It's why I got into the charity sector in the first place, is to try and create a fairer, more equitable playing field for you know citizens. And I think you know, what St. John does by its nature is a great leveller. You know, we treat anyone regardless of their background, uh, you know, and our volunteers indeed come from every background. We have, you know, volunteers who by day are laying roads and uh, by night are driving an ambulance, sitting alongside someone who by day is a vice president of a blue chip corporate and by night is driving an ambulance. So there's something about the way that we work that levels the playing field. And I recognize that you know we're privileged in some respects because we've got money out of the treasury and there are plenty of charities that have not had a penny so the estimated loss to the voluntary sector is about 4 billion and so the 750 million really only helps organizations like ours who are facing the front line but of course there's absolute cost to facing the front line. So, you know, it's helping us to deliver, but it's not helping us to change the shape of our organisation or to be strong for rebuilding. And we, like many uh, organisations, will end up looking at finance and the finance options available to leverage uh, our estate against uh, our future. And, you know, no CEO particularly wants to go out and increase debt in their tenure. Um, And St John has not traditionally been an organisation that's needed to debt. Uh, but I don't see another way of managing the organisation uh, to trade through this uh, with good liquidity and ensuring that we can rebuild in the future back to the scale that we are now. So you're not, you're not saying to the... You're keeping the conversation going with, with Treasury, but you're not saying... It sounds like you're... Um you're not expecting another check from Treasury and you're having to, you know, as the leader, you have to think, let's assume there's no more money coming from the state. We'd be more fortunate than some, but we have to, there's two things. You have to see how you can make your own finances work. And then there's this, the dreaded right size. Yeah, absolutely. And the money that we got from the Treasury was for 12 weeks. Well, you know, you better be sure that at the end of 12 weeks, if we're still fully deployed delivering COVID and there's no training and event income, I am going to be going back to Treasury and saying, right, you know, well, that was great. We've done 12 weeks work. Do you really want us to switch off right now? Come on. So, I, you know, I'll be challenging them as I, as I was at the beginning at, at the end of that, that period of time. But I, I also uh, recognise that, you know, we are going to have to change the way that we work. We're going to have to think about how we train. Do we really need three-day face-to-face training courses? What can we do digitally? Um, and, 
you know, how many people do need to be sat in offices, how much work can be done from home. I think like everybody, uh, recognising that there's some changes that are needed to the way that we work is, is essential. But I'm also acutely aware that it's very difficult for people who are in uh, successful jobs, who uh, you know are uh, financially all right, and you know uh, uh, to make decisions about people who are on much lower incomes. And the reality is that the majority of our employees, like the majority of employees in every organisation, are not on big bucks. They're not, uh, you know, being paid the kind of money that's going to be life changing. They're paid enough to to put food on the table, to perhaps have a holiday once a year, to buy their kids some presents, to to pay the mortgage, to pay the rent. Uh, so what happens then if you ask them to work from home? Are they even in an environment that it's safe to do so, that it's uh, you know healthy and conducive to do so? So I've got to be really careful that I don't have some sort of grandiose idea about creating this wholly digital organisation that works in a different way, because I can imagine it with me in my house where I've got a, the luxury of having a, my own space as a study you know that's not how it is for everyone so we've got to be really careful as we do change the nature of the way that we work what has happened to interest from are more people wanting to sign up with you as volunteers through this period we've had all, all sorts of um, really uh, exciting sign up so we've we've entered into relationships with the airline so uh, both british airways and tui have sent some of their crews to us and we've trained them up quite quickly they're already uh, emergency first aid trained so they just need some of those patient caring skills that actually are part of them reassuring passengers anyway and they they're a great addition as well as individuals from the public who are saying we'd love to join and so uh, we have continued training. We've, you know, we have had to do it in a socially distant way. So a lot of it has gone online. But there's something about the way that we work. It's essential. You, you have to physically practice some things like taking blood pressures and, and cardio uh, pulmonary uh, resuscitation. But actually, the really important bit that we teach people is about how you provide that reassurance, how you provide that that kindness and care. Uh, but yes, you know, volunteers have been coming to the organisation in numbers. And I think, you know, one of the things, I, as I was saying at the beginning about sort of leading from a different format is I've been very conscious of being a visible leader. So on Twitter, you know, I've been doing weekly videos. I've had open question and answer sessions, dial-in sessions. Um, I, I, I've made sure that I'm as accessible as possible. And when I joined St. John, I decided to join as a volunteer first aider myself here in Brighton. And so I've continued volunteering and although I have a health condition that means I'm not allowed to uh, go out and face COVID patients uh, I've been volunteering at our central logistics centre helping to you know answer the phones and send the emails out and make sure that the PPE stocks are right and that questions are answered about health and safety and so on and the benefit of that is seeing our people listening uh, to what's happening on the ground and being accessible uh, you know just people who can come and bend my ear as they see me walking by and I think in this in this time when you, you know as a volunteer, you're putting your life on the line, or as an employee, you're feeling, uh, you know, remote from things. Being able to feel like you can access your leaders, to talk to them, to, if necessary, cry on their shoulder and say, "I, I, I am not coping," I think is really important. And uh, interested in, well, hopefully, as things come back, which could be 2021 or whenever. So much of your stuff, the the, the training, the events, and so on, is uh, these are activities from a previous time, if you like. So I'm wondering how you 
chart the return to, in inverted commas, normality. And if you have to make choices because of uh, your finances, what do you do less of? So I I think the event season will be slow to grow, but actually uh, I think our COVID work and the event season will will have a a reasonably good interface that as we slow down our NHS support, the events will increase. So I'm less worried about, uh, if you like, the clinical operation. I'm much more concerned about the nature of training. Uh, you know, how quickly will people return to want to be in a classroom with 12 people? How quickly will businesses uh, restart? Uh, you know, it's a statutory requirement to have health and safety first aiders in your workplace if you've got uh, the right number of people at, at work. But there'll be fewer businesses. There'll be f- m- less money in the economy. You know, what, what's going to happen and I suspect two things one is that we will have to change the way we deliver so decrease the amount of contact time with people so be more digital so the innovation needs to be really rapid on that then change the nature of the interaction when you are there how do you do this in a way that is lowers the risk of infection and then I think the other the other bit is recognizing that if things are slow to grow in the economy and that we've lost some big businesses who would otherwise be our main contract uh, holders, then I'm going to need fewer venues, fewer trainers. And I guess what I want to do is make sure that I hold on to people for as long as possible so that it's easy to restart. So the longer the furlough happens, the better for our organisation because uh, we have to let fewer people go. I think the other really interesting challenge is this is the time to embrace flexible working like you've never embraced it before, to think long and hard about annualised hours, about part-time contracts, about uh, you know work sharing and, and ensuring that we're really creative about the way people work. So we know we've got to still deliver high quality training in a really reliable fashion. But why should everyone be on 35 hour contracts, uh, you know, that requires you to do seven hours a day? You know, why can't we be really creative? So I think putting all of those bits together will minimize the number of people that at the end of the day, we won't be able to employ in a, a world where we have less demand for our training services. Yeah, and I'm sure many organisations are going through those thoughts at, at, at this time as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. And I, uh, the other bit I, I think we do have to factor in is that in a world where some businesses haven't survived, will those of us who have the privilege of stewarding the larger organisations, will we end up having to be stronger because there are fewer smaller organizations around uh, will we therefore actually see a different kind of upturn we, you know we're planning for a slow recovery but could we see a real tick of a recovery because there are fewer organizations who've had the uh, ability to survive this storm because i think in your sector we we are well we still wait to see what more the government can do and and where the economy goes but th- the betting would be that a lot of small charities simply can't continue 
It, it's it's a matter of fact that there are um, organisations that are that are closing. I used to be the chair of the YMCA for England and Wales, and uh, YMCA's are reliant on people coming to their gymnasia. They're reliant on a lot of community involvement with perhaps nurseries and so on. If those have closed, the impact on very tight incomes, often with zero margins built into them, means that they're going to have to think about you know selling buildings, uh, uh, reducing staff. And in some cases, because YMCA's are local independent bodies, it will mean them closing. I hope and aspire that what that means is that charities will really look at mergers and coming together. I think probably there are too many charities anyway. And so there are opportunities here to say, well, you're doing the same as me. And we've seen some really good examples of that. Breast cancer, for example, many of the breast cancer charities have joined together, have have become stronger as a result of doing so. And indeed, in my time at YMCA, we saw many YMCAs join together and become big, strong regional YMCAs. I think, you know, we, we're designed to work in collaboration by our DNA, by our values. Now should be the time where organisations are saying, OK, maybe we can't continue as we were, but, but who could we merge with? Martin, I think you were first in charge at Missing People, correct me if I'm wrong, after you'd been at uh, Children's Society. How was that getting the top job? Did you feel you were, you were ready for that? Had you lots of things still to learn? I still don't think I'm ready for it. I mean, it's, you know, to, who thinks that they have the ability to lead an organisation to make big decisions that impact so many people's lives? No, I mean, I, you know, I, I, like everybody else, when they, particularly when you get your first chief exec job, you know, it's a bit like the first kiss. You know, someone someone actually loves you enough to 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 want to be in a relationship with you, and a, and a, a chief exec job is a relationship. It's a relationship with your board. It's a relationship with your organisation. Um, no, I still think it's the luckiest break I've ever had. And uh, I was very lucky to have a fantastic boss at the Children's Society, Kathy Evans, who leads uh, Children England. And she put the job description on my desk. I, you know, maybe she just wanted to get rid of me, but it said she'd written on the top report for duty. <laughs> and uh, it was what she saw in me that, you know, I, I thought, oh, really? I mean, you know, but I'm but I'm so young and I, I've got so little experience. And it's it's a great privilege to to take on those roles. And I, I, I mean, I actually picked up the phone to the existing chief exec and said, what do you think? He said, oh, I hadn't really thought of you, Martin, but yeah, you probably could do the job. Give it a go. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I am a little bit left field. I, I, I have quite a gregarious style of leadership and I'm quite vocal about the sort of creative side of uh, the world that I like to work it's why I enjoy leading visibly and and vocally and and I think at missing people because it was a founder led organization originally it really grabbed hold of that side of me and we you know we did a lot of media work we had a tv program on the bbc and uh, and it was an organization that simply by reorientating it to its roots uh, making it fundamentally about that lifeline when someone disappears both for those who are missing but really importantly their loved ones and it was a lifeline wasn't it the whole what one of the one of the main successes of, of your time there i think was the, the introduction of this national helpline it, that was such an interesting moment because <laughs> they they'd said oh well we we've, we've got this opportunity to take on the 116000 number it's a an, a european number of significance it's guaranteed but you know we think we've got our numbers. And like a lot of helplines, they've got legacy numbers and actually a number of them. Um, and I, I just said, you know, guys, how many of you can 
recount all of our telephone numbers off by heart. (laughs) It is crazy. Um, Here's a six-digit number. No one's ever heard of our telephone number anyway, and it's got European support. And of course, in those days, you know, being part of the European Union gave you extra leverage with government. And uh, those were the days. It was a real wow factor. Yeah, (laughs) in my view, absolutely. Uh, You know, we were really privileged to work as part of a European family, and it made such a significant difference. And of course, it also gave us that opportunity to resell ourselves in the media to go out there uh, we you know we had a fantastic deal that we did with the outdoor media people who do these big digital signs to to take their latency when when it wasn't being filled and to put the images of missing people up on, on those signs and that really shifted people's perception we moved from sort of milk cartons to digital signboards and uh what a transformation. And the consequence was, you know, that the income went up, our reach went up, and most importantly, the impact for the families of missing people was significant. And they, they said, you know, this feels like our charity. It feels like a real change. And what are the skills that you didn't have then and then going through to, to lead DePaul UK, which is the homeless charity you were in charge of for five years? What, what did you keep looking over your shoulder and thinking, you know, I've, I've, got to, I've got to pick that up from somewhere. I've got to pick this up. So, I mean, my first, my first mentor was Maeve Sherlock, who's now a peer in the House of Lords, um, uh, but she wasn't when I first met her. So uh, uh, it's great amusement that I have a Baroness as a friend. But Maeve was leading the Refugee Council when I first met her, and she'd previously been an economics advisor for Gordon Brown. And she's just an extraordinary mind and a great leader, such clarity of thought. And I learned a great deal about decisive leadership from Maeve and, and really thinking about stakeholders and, and, and all of that. And, and that seemed to come quite naturally to me. But when I went to DePaul, it was much more commercial. So it was a housing association. It was delivering housing for young people. And the relationship with local authorities was much more financially driven. And I felt like that was my Achilles heel, really, that whilst I was a good fundraiser and I was good with seeing the big numbers and sort of activating people to give and respond, actually that contractual relationship, you know, I'd, I'd done a bit of it. I did a year of it in the Children's Society, uh, heading up business development, but it was a bit more salesy than it was contractual and commissioning and margins and all of that. So I, I sought out a, a mentor, Mark Astaire, who is uh, high up in Barclays Investment. And um, Mark's an extraordinary character, a, a, a man with a huge social conscience. Uh, I don't know how many investment bankers are like that, but Mark is. And he has really been my sort of financial and commercial mentor through all of this. Uh, and although I'd, you know, I'd done my CAS business school sort of postgrad training right at the beginning, which you know has been such a good anchor and toolkit to use, it was really the confidence to make the right decisions, in particular about appointing good financial leadership and knowing what good financial leadership looks like. Because partnering with your CFO is in your big organizations it's it's life or death to you you know if you don't have that right business partner as your as your fd you are absolutely not going to make it do you think most charities have got enough have got a tight enough grip on the finances um, because so many you know rightly so many charities are mission driven there's a real uh, ambition to you know their cause and I, I hear a lot of charity leaders I've interviewed they do regard themselves as the fundraiser in chief but I think being the fundraiser in chief is very different to to being you know having a real tight hold on incoming and outgoings for sure and actually I blame the lack 
of people coming into the sector to lead financially. So I think we've got a shortage of people, particularly people who've honed their skills in the private sector, who understand what it is to lead financially, coming into our sector to work with us. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I had a great FD at St. John who's, who, who moved on, and I so I needed an interim. And I interviewed 10 people before I found the one that I thought, could do the job. And I think we as a sector have not attracted and looked after FDs well enough. We've not given them enough esteem. If you're a fundraising director, you're going to be lauded and applauded. Uh, you know, not that you're not going to get beaten up in some parts of the press, but but you're, you're, you're seen as having a charity skill set. If you're a chief exec, you're seen as having a, a charity skill set. But if you're an FD, where's the incentive? You're going to earn less in the private sector. Uh, no one's going to, you know, remember you when it comes to putting a honours forward or, you know, inviting you out to, you know, supporter occasions. You're going to be stuck in a corner office somewhere uh, with a finance team and largely forgotten. And I think we as a sector have a responsibility to celebrate our financial leaders to nurture them to have much more effective training so I speak a lot on financial leadership not because I have any financial credentials myself in fact I have dyscalculia so I have to use a set of really forensic tools to help me with financial analysis because I can't read a number sequence longer than six digits. Uh, when you've got a learning disability, you learn to overcome, probably overcompensate. But what I do believe in is that as a charity sector, we have to really challenge our financial leaders to be strategic, to be bold, to to hold a you know those challenging conversations but i also think we need really high quality trustees who've got you know financial probity in their dna who are seen as real linchpins within the trustee boards given greater ability to to help with that leadership and i i've made it particularly through this crisis brought our financial trustees very close so i mean my the fd and i and two of our financial trustees a meeting for a couple of hours a week at the moment because I think the wisdom, the insight that they can bring in a crisis to govern through this is hugely helpful. And as a sector, we've got to hold that really tight. You talked earlier, Martin, about offering the shoulder to cry on to to your people through through some of this. Where are you going to for support? So yeah, I, I think leadership is is fundamentally about humanity and compassion. And you have to be human and compassionate with yourself too. And and that's that's quite hard because you you know, I guess I'm like many people in these roles, you you expect yourself to be a superhero, you expect yourself to get it right. You know, this is not a time where I feel like I've got much leeway for making mistakes, and yet of course I will make mistakes. Um so there's a bit about using your the ability and the strength that you've got. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in meditation and prayer and using those sort of self-reflexive uh, techniques. But I have, over time, built those relationships, you know, with, with Maeve, with, with Mark as, as my mentors. But also, I've maintained a therapeutic relationship for 15 years where, you know, once a month I go and speak to a, a psychotherapist. I, I largely tell them how angry I am with, uh, you know, usually individuals, um, which is usually an expression of frustration and uh, difficulty. But also, actually, what you end up doing is reflecting the fact that, you know, you get cross 
with with stuff because you're kind of cross with yourself and in this time it is really hard because we're you know i'm sure everyone's in the same boat but you know for the first two weeks uh, you know it was seven days a week it was 16 17 hours a day and you, you, the adrenaline carried you through you were you weren't thinking this latter part yeah, yeah still really long days I mean, you know you're kind of and and goodness me video conferencing is exhausting it's so draining uh, it's partially because it's so egocentric you've got a big picture of yourself in the corner and you can't you know when do you have a conversation you look at a mirror of yourself and you've got to keep rearranging your bookcase as well haven't you to, to make sure that looks good yeah and i have a bottle of vintage carver in the fridge <laughs> for the time when i have a video conference call when someone doesn't use the word mute um I, someone said i should auction it because it'll never get never get opened but it, you know it, it is it is an exhausting process but you're you're sat down glued to your your computer for 12 13 hours a day five or six days a week so the bits that i've been doing is you know getting up early enough to take some exercise to do some meditation to have some martin time eating really healthily but also with a very small and trusted group of people being very honest about my down days. So saying, I have had a dreadful day. I just feel terrible. I feel terrible about myself. I don't feel like I am making a difference. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. Uh, I, uh, you know, I'm just really, really anxious. And having those safe spaces to describe uh, frailty, uh, I think actually means surprisingly somehow in articulating that you bounce back and you you have a good day and you say we can do this and uh, you know now I've got all you know I'm so proud of the team that I've got at St John you know the the reason I can delegate is because I've got an incredible team of people around me and and saying look I've got the right people I've got the right board all the ingredients are in place for this to happen Uh, the people that we're asking to do things on the ground are doing everything we're asking of them and so that kind of sense of almost forgiveness if you like uh, that we are going to make mistakes and these are difficult times I think it's a huge part of maintaining that inner resilience Okay Martin Houghton Brown thanks so much for the conversation. Brilliant thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton please rate and review us if you like what you've heard You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or through leadingpod.com. They include Robin Mortimer, the Chief Executive of the Port of London Authority. Here he is recalling some wise words from his first chairman on how to lead better. The chairman who appointed me, Dame Helen Alexander, who sadly passed away Mm. a couple of years ago, she she said to me after our first board meeting, she said, I mean, that was great, you know, really good. She said, you know, you need to remember you're in charge. You're not here, you know, just to, you know, sort of put ideas to us because that sort of natural tendency of a civil servant to sort of say, well, you know, here's a recommendation and over to you. And I guess one of the learnings for me has been, you know, actually, no, you pitch up and you say, look, what I think we should do is this. And then obviously you invite views and, you know, people always do have views and that's what the board's there for. Mm -hmm.